Good evening. I hope that the last two days um, everyone has had an, ed an educational and enjoyable experience, and we really thank you all for coming. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you the man often referred to as America's medicine man, Dr. Roy Vagelos. Receiving, <laughs> receiving his BA degree in chemistry from the University of Pennsylvania in 1950, Dr. Vagelos attended Columbia Medical School, graduating in 1954. He has since been awarded honorary Doctor of Science degrees from numerous prestigious universities, as well as receiving an honorary Doctor of Law degree from Princeton University. His years in academia include teaching at Washington University, where he served as chairman of the Department of Biological Chemistry in the School of Medicine, as well as serving as the director of the university's division of biology and biomedical science. In 1985, Dr. Vagelos joined Merck, the world's largest pharmaceutical company. As the CEO of Merck, Dr. Vagelos transformed the company, making it a leader in drug discovery by recruiting the best scientists and devoting himself to humanitarian aid. Such devotion to those in need was illustrated when Merck, under the leadership of Dr. Vagelos, really distributed a drug to fight river blindness around the world. Furthermore, Dr. Vagelos made the development of anti-HIV drugs a corporate goal of Merck, which continues to be a vital leader in the development of HIV therapies. During his time at Merck, it was named America's most admired company by Fortune magazine seven years in a row. As Dr. Rosenberg said in the panel discussion this afternoon, the pharmaceutical industry needs people like Dr. Vagelos, who never fail to point out that they were in the business of health. Proving his leadership in the academic world, as well as the commercial one, Dr. Vagelos left Merck in 1988 and returned to academia to serve in his current position as chairman of the University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees. His list of accomplishments includes the publishing of over 100 scientific papers, as well as numerous awards for demonstrating social responsibility and leadership in the pharmaceutical industry. He was presented the National Medal of Technology in 1992 by President Bush. In 1994, in recognition of his contribution to the nation, the University of Pennsylvania awarded Dr. Vagelos the Science to Democracy Award. The University of Pennsylvania honored him once again in November of 1997 by dedicating their new interdisciplinary research center to he and his wife as the Roy and Diana Vagelos Laboratories. Despite all of these honors, Dr. Vagelos has never lost sight of his desire to help others. His commitment to humanity has been reflected in all of his leadership roles. Please help me in welcoming the world's medicine man, Dr. Roy Vagelos. Thanks, Alexi. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm, uh, I was wondering about talking after dinner and, and looking out with the lights out and the slides coming on. And I thought that would never do. And so we're not going to have any slides and the, and the lights will not go off. And so you're in for it. I want to start with this. I want to start with a disclaimer. First, I'm not a bioethicist. I'm not even an ethicist. I'm a, uh, biomedical scientist who ended up as head of the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Uh, and I want to tell you about the, the route to, to how it all happened and, and uh, because it's so local. Uh, I, w I was actually born not far from here in Westfield, New Jersey. And it was a uh, uh, right during the, actually it was October of 1929, which is the time of the stock market crash. And, and so I remember it well. The, <laughs> but it was, I was born into a, uh, a Greek immigrant family. 
and, and grew up first in Westfield and then in Rahway, New Jersey. And as a Greek immigrant family, uh, my parents had a small restaurant because all Greek immigrant families have restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 in fact, and in fact, the whole family was involved in this small restaurant. But interestingly enough, and those of you, and there's a sprinkling of you here who are, who are New Jerseyites, know that the, the headquarters of Merck is in Rahway, New Jersey. And I went to high school in Rahway, New Jersey, and, and waited tables in this small restaurant. And what I heard in this small restaurant was the excitement of the young scientists who had their breakfast, lunch, and dinner in our restaurant and talked about the discovery of vitamin B12 in those days and, and later streptomycin and the work on penicillin. And they were so excited about their work and, and, uh, and, and their lifestyle seemed so terrific that as I finished high school and started thinking about college, I thought, you know, I wanted to be like them. So, so I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I don't remember why. It was not for basketball. <laughs> uh, but I went to the University of Pennsylvania and decided to, uh, right off the bat, that I would be a chemist. And, and I spent my time at the university doing chemistry. And, and only as I was approaching my, see, my last year uh, uh, and thinking about my future and talking with my family, I recognized that my my grandfather had been a physician in Greece and had died when he was very young, so I never knew him. But my dad um, and his brothers, who, who really did not get much education at all because the father died when he was in his, when he was in his actually 30s, uh, they had all immigrated to the United States. And, and he talked to, to me a great deal about medicine. And so at the last moment, I decided to go to medical school. And, and that was uh, that caused me to quickly take a biology course and and a few other things that I had not taken as a chemistry major. Uh, and I went to Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Now, that was that was quite an interesting thing, because at Penn, I really liked chemistry. And I took chemistry with a professor, Alan Day, who was teaching mechanisms of organic chemi uh, chemical reactions in a way that wasn't being done elsewhere. And so after I took the first course, uh, he decided that he would, he would give an advanced course for the first time ever. And I took the advanced course. And I liked that as well. So when I went to medical school, while other people were concerned about their biology, I knew damn little biology. So I continued to think chemically over all, all the various topics that we covered. And that, that remained very close to me. I, uh, I liked medicine and went beyond that to the Massachusetts General Hospital to do clinical work. And, and that was wonderful because the, the doctors there were so committed to their patients, but they were also very interested in biomedical research. They had the perfect fusion of people caring about people, doctors caring about people, but also terrific basic uh, studies in research. Uh, as I was finishing there, I owed Uncle Sam two years of military service because there was a doctor draft still. But no, there was no, there was no war, but there was a draft, and I owed two years 
and so there, I had an opportunity because of people knowing my interest in research. I was invited to the National Institutes of Health and offered a position to take care of patients there and do some research, which sounded better than being in the Army. And so, so I did go to NIH uh, for two years and worked with Earl Statman, which, who was and still is one of the great biochemists of the world. And I worked in his laboratory for two years and had a number of interesting uh, things that happened to me while I was there. He said, for instance, one time, he said, Roy, why don't you come and take my course in microbial biochemistry in the evening? It was a night course. I said, okay, very casually. So I sat in on this course casually. Uh, at the end of the semester, he said, how'd you like the course? I said, it was okay. And he said, uh, you know, I'm going on sabbatical next year. I said, oh, that's fine. He said, but you're going to teach the course. <laughs> so that was the way I was introduced to biochemistry. <laughs> uh, Earl, Earl did go on sabbatical, and I was left to run the laboratory, which was rather large at the time. And I was so excited about what was going on in my own research lab that instead of t staying the two years that I owed Uncle Sam, I stayed for 10 and, and, uh, and really became a, a committed biochemist. The first several years, I worked with patients and took care of patients, and these were cardiology patients. So I got to know heart disease inside and out. And, and I was thinking about the biochemistry of disease at that time. Um, but I had always wanted to take care of patients. And, and I was dr being drawn more and more into the laboratory. And, and uh, in 1966, I was invited to Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, there, I was to teach medical students. So I thought, now, now I'll be closer. I'll be teaching. I won't be taking care of patients. I'll be teaching students. They'll be taking care of patients. That'll be better. So I went to Washington University and, and, and uh, in fact, had a wonderful time because the students there were so terrific. And we taught medical students, graduate students, and I even taught some undergrads, if you'll pardon the expression. And, and, and that all went pretty well. Um, 1975, I was called. Now, I failed to tell you one thing, and that is, while I was at medical school, I was invited by friends at, at Merck to do an internship. And so between my first and second year of medical school, I spent a summer at Merck and worked in the laboratory then and really got to know people so that, so that uh, I felt very comfortable in the laboratory. But it was not a serious thing in my mind. When I went back to medical school, I sort of forgot about it. 1975, they called me and said, uh, Roy, would you like to come back as head of research? And I said, you, you know, are you sure you know what you're saying? Because I have never worked on drug discovery. The laboratories had sort of run out of steam, and they wanted new leadership. And so they wanted a new biochemist, a modern-day biochemist, to come into the laboratory and lead their drug discovery program. And I, so the challenge of an entirely new direction, and that is to think about drugs again, and particularly the idea that instead of taking care of patients one at a time, that drug discovery would allow me to affect, if we were successful, the lives of thousands, if not millions, of patients. And so that really turned me on. 
there was a, there was a, a, uh, a side interest, and that is my parents still lived in Rahway. And so coming back to Rahway then became the thing to do. And, and I did come back to Merck. That was 1975. When I came back, the idea was to apply my knowledge of biochemistry, the knowledge of how the, the body's chemistry works, and how disease can be impacted by chemistry that's going on in the body. And I, I came back with the idea that we would select molecules uh, in the body that could, could affect different disease processes. And, and that I went through the laboratory. There were 1,800 people when I arrived. They had been doing their thing, uh, which was a tradi traditional type of drug screening in, in live animals. And I said, you know, there's a better way. We will target molecules, and we will come at them chemically and using, excuse me, also natural products, and we will try to discover new drugs in a different way. And many of the people in the laboratory were right with it, and they said, that is what we will do. And we started a program that was incredibly productive. It came up with a new antibiotic in Cefoxidin, which became the number one hospital antibiotic in the world. And then we, we found the first important drug for glaucoma called Timoptic. Then we, we discovered the first drug that lowers blood cholesterol for reducing the risk of, of heart attacks. And, and these drugs, these were, these were the first breakthrough drugs, and other companies picked them up later, and, and they were sort of multiplied around the world. But uh, the growth of Merck really just took off. So it was terrific. But one thing was, was funny, and that is when I looked at the people around Merck in the laboratories initially, I found that the great majority were ready to go on this molecular targeting. But some were not. Some were able to do the traditional screening in live animals. They would take chemicals and feed them to an animal and see if it lower blood pressure or cure something. And, and uh, there was one group that was led by uh, Bill Campbell. Now, Bill Campbell was a world-class parasitologist. He, he understood about worms and other parasites. And when I talked to him about molecules, his eyes rolled back. But when he talked about parasites, he lit up. And he said, you know, I'm going to discover a new drug that will kill all parasites. <laughs> I said, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I have this mouse. And in this mouse, I open up the abdomen, the mouse about, you know, open up the abdomen, and we put in the abdomen little worms. And then we sew up the abdomen, and the, and the mouse continues to live, and then we feed that, that little mouse broth from microorganisms selected from soil. Well, you all know that many antibiotics were discovered in soil, and Bill had the notion that in soil there might be important medicines that would kill parasites and worms. And so he was going to search soil organisms. Having seen his eyes roll back the way they did, I figured you have to go with the horses you've got. So I said, Bill, you go ahead and find us a new drug. <clears throat> and so he went to screening one soil organism after another. And, and finally, he got some soil 
from a golf course in Japan. <laughs> golf courses in Japan are very expensive. And, and he got this soil sample. And, and when he put that, in, he grew the organism and he fed that stuff to the mouse with worms in the abdomen. And the worms all died. And he took the, that, that uh, little broth and he diluted it first five times, then ten times, and a hundred times. And every time he did that, the diluted form killed all the worms. It was an incredible thing. So he came running to my office. He said, I have the most powerful anti-parasitic agent in the world. And I said, Bill, be serious. And he said, come and look. And we looked. And, the, and clearly, at, this, was, this was an incredibly potent uh, broth that he had. So we set all the, the several of the really good chemists at Merck to, to identify the active substance in this broth. And they came up with a structure, a brand new structure, never having been seen before in the world. It was a macrolide, and it was called ivermectin. Now, so Bill, having been a, a world-class parasitologist, knew just what to do with this. He looked... <laughs> He knew. And, and, and you, know, uh, you know, parasites are really important. Worms, human, human worms like tapeworm and hookworm are really important. Well, it turned out that tapeworms and hookworms are not sensitive to ivermectin. <laughs> and so, but, but when he looked at the worms that infect cows and horses and pigs and sheep, it is dynamite. And let me tell you what it does. If you take a small dose of this ivermectin and you go to a field of cattle. Now, cattle are filled with worms because they eat things from the soil. And, they're, and they, they ingest everything that's on the, on the grass. And, they, and they're filled with worms. And the worms cause them to be very inefficient in, in using their feed. And so they, they don't gain weight as the farmers would like them to. They look a little sad. Uh, so if you give these, if you, if, you, if you go out now and you do a trial, if you take ivermectin and you give it to half the cattle in the field and you mark them with a little thing so you identify who's got what, and the other is you give a placebo and you go back two weeks later, it's easy to identify the cattle that have received the ivermectin because they have a sleek, nice, shiny hide. They're very happy looking. They look a little... And the other ones have weeping sores because flies bite, bite uh, cattle and they bite right through the hide and they bleed and they, and they have, have flies buzzing around them. And so it was clear that not only did this drug kill all the internal worms, but it also killed biting insects. So it was a magical drug. And, and uh, so the laboratory focused on, on initially, excuse me, initially uh, uh, developing this drug for animals. And it, it developed it, a dose both oral and injectable forms for horses and cows and sheep and pigs. And ultimately, dogs also. Does anyone here have a dog? Yeah, do you, do you feed it a drug once a month for heartworm? Yeah, that's ivermectin. 
That is ivermectin. You are all using ivermectin. And you've all eaten beef. We had beef today. That beef had ivermectin. It, it became the largest animal product in the world years out. It went on the market in 1978. By 1979, 1980, Bill Campbell was still in the lab, still world-class parasitologist. <laughs> and he's thinking about human disease, and he has noted that in an unusual parasite in horses, which goes through a development phase called the microfilaria, tiny immature form, that, that this horse microfilarial parasite was very sensitive to ivermectin. Uh, he told that to one of our doctors, uh, Mohammed Aziz, Pakistani, who had worked in the World Health Organization in Africa. And the two of them came to me and said, Roy, you know, it's possible that this drug could work in river blindness. I said, well, tell me about river blindness. And Mohammed explained to me about river blindness. River blindness is a parasitic disease that infects 18 million people in the world. The exposure, the people who are at risk, number between 80 and 85 million. And at any one time in sub-Saharan Africa, just under the Sahara, where you have rapidly flowing streams, and, and this disease is very prevalent, in villages there you will have 30 or 40 percent of the adults completely blind. Now, the way the disease works is as follows. It's caused by a parasite, parasitic worm, which is called Oncocerca volvulus. It's a worm. <laughs> it is... It is, it is, but importantly, it is transmitted by the bite of a fly. And these flies breed only along rapidly flowing streams in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Latin America. And so it's along these areas. Unfortunately, the people who, are, who live in these areas are all living off the land. They're agricultural people, and they must live in, in the fertile areas that are close to the rivers, so they are bitten by these flies. Now, I don't know how it first started, but the people who have the, the infection by this parasite uh, have the microfilaria in their skin. And so a black fly bites a person and picks up the microfilaria, a microscopic worm. Now, inside of the fly, and this is really important, only inside of the fly can that parasite start to mature. If it doesn't go into the fly, it remains as a microfilaria. If it goes into the fly and the fly bites someone else, it then injects a form of the worm that now can mature and it matures right under the bite, in the skin. The adults that form there, the males become about eight inches long. The females about 18 inches long. And they live in the skin in a, in a nodule, in a lump. And you see these people who have lumps in different parts of their bodies where they were bitten and where the adults live. 
the adults live about 14 years. They have a long lifespan. But they don't do the damage. The damage is done by their babies. These guys make billions of microfilaria, these tiny microscopic things, and they crawl all through the skin. And they crawl through the skin, causing enormous itching. So these people spend their, wake, their waking hours scratching constantly, and their skin is just denuded from the constant scratching. Uh, but most importantly for river blindness, the microfilaria get into the eyes. They, go, they migrate right into the eyes. They cause first inflammation, then hardening of the eyeball, and it becomes hard like a marble. And so these people become completely blind. And in villages in these areas, the, the common sight is of the adults, the older adults, because you have to accumulate this, this inflammation over time. The older adults who are blind are being led by the, young, the younger people on a stick. And you'll see a, 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 a row of four to six adults, each holding the end of a stick in the front of the line is a, is a young boy who is leading the, the group. So that is the disease. It's a terrible thing, and, and the people are sort of stuck. They can either stay near the rivers and be bitten by flies or go back into the areas that are, that are not fertile, and they starve. And so they're caught, and this is, and this is a, uh, a terrible dilemma for them. Well, uh, Muhammad knew this, knew this disease, and, and uh, he said he would go to try our drug, I said, fine. He went to Dakar in Senegal, sub-Saharan Africa, and, and he took a couple of dozen people who were clearly infected. And the way he did this experiment was very simple. He took a little skin snip over the hip, and he took this little piece of skin, and he teased it out under a microscope, and he counted the number of worms, these little microfilaria. And there were 25 per milligram of skin on the average. So these people were literally filled with microfilaria. Their skin was. Uh, he, he then gave everybody, he gave half of them, uh, uh, a small dose, an oral dose of ivermectin. And the other half he gave a little placebo. And he came back in a month. And he took a skin snip again and looked under the microscope and all the microfilaria, all the worms were gone. There were none. It was an unbelievable thing. He went from 100% to zero. And he went back in three months and he took skin snips again and there were none. And so and this was after one dose. And so it was a remarkable effect. We got very excited. Uh, uh, Bill Campbell had really discovered something, you know. <laughs> so we, so, so we invited, we invited the members, the parasitologists from the World Health Organization. We said we have something that's very important for river blindness, and they had a whole program on river blindness. And so I had my first contact with members of the World Health Organization. I was head of the laboratory at Merck and, and dressed in my usual pretty casual, slovenly uh, d uh, dress. And, and uh, they came in with their very 
highly tailored uh, shirts and, and hand-painted ties. I could not believe these people were World Health Organization people. We presented our data to them, and, and they were very skeptical. They looked at it and, and uh, these remarkable effects, and they said, well, you know, you just haven't studied enough of these patients to see what horrible side effects you're going to have. And, and uh, when you really get into this disease, you will see that your drug isn't very good. Um, well, I was very turned on by this. <laughs> you know, the, the competitive juices started to run, of course. I asked them how they were taking care of patients with river blindness, and they were using a drug which was called diethylcarbamide. Diethyl which, which, which is a terrible drug. It's not very effective, and it and it's causes tremendous side effects, so patients won't take it. But they had another trick. They were going to kill the flies. So they had built a fleet. They had a fleet of planes and helicopters, and they were going to spray all the flies. And so when they thought of a drug that could be given once a year, and what that could do to their fleet. There was no question we couldn't go on with this project. And so, so they left, and we determined that we were going to do it on our own. And so Mohammed went, uh, went back to Africa, and, in, and now we went up into the hundreds of patients. We started, uh, and it was very difficult because we were working in remote areas, and the Merck people really got into it. And, and uh, Muhammad Aziz was a fantastic leader. So he organized these studies, which demonstrated that indeed you could do this, you could treat this disease by giving the drug once per year. And it was completely safe. And, and, uh, and, and it took us, that was about 1981 when we finished, it, we started then thinking, how are we going to get this drug to these people? Well, it was clear that the drug worked. It was safe. It was able to stop the disease. It did not reverse the blindness, but it would sh surely stop the disease. There would be no more blind people if we succeeded. So we started to think how we would distribute this drug. And, and of course, we knew immediately that the places that had the drug uh, that had the disease were very poor. They're the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and so we started with the U.S. government, and, and uh, by then I had become head of the company. So uh, I went down to Washington and met with Donald Reagan, who was chief of staff of, of Reagan at the time, and I told him about this exciting drug, and I suggested that the U.S. government buy it from us at a very low cost, and then present it to the, to the African countries and thereby plant the American flag. He said, how much would that cost? I said, well, you probably started for about $2 million the first year. It would gradually go up. He said, $2 million. This was 1986. He said, we ought to do it. So I turned to his aide and said, we ought to do it. We walked out of the office, and I said, we're going to do it. He said, we don't have any money. I said, $2 million is what we're talking about. He said, we don't have any money. The, t the, 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 the budget's all tied up. And so I was, I, that wasn't going to stop me. I made arrangements to, to meet with the Deputy uh, Secretary of State, who was then John Whitehead. 
And, 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 and John was a very nice man. He heard the story, became very excited about it, and, and we went into uh, uh, a discussion of the cost, which was the same. I used the same numbers. And he turned to his aide and said, you know, we ought to do this. We walked out of the, out of the office, and the aide said, we don't have any money. And so I then turned to foundations, went to Europe and talked to European governments that were related to Afri having had African relations. And we could not get a government to be interested in, in this. And so we, we were coming close to panic in the company because we had filed, we had filed the, the, all the data on the clinical work with, with the French regulatory authorities in Paris. Now, the reason we went to France is that the French had people in Paris even who had had river blindness and, and because of French equatorial Africa. And, and, and so we filed it in France. We couldn't file it in the, in the United States because there is no river blindness in the U.S. And so, so we filed it in France. And, and uh, we went on debating within the company uh, exactly how we would do this. And we started talking about selling it for a dollar a year per, per patient. And then we dropped to 50 cents and then 10 cents. And we said, this is ridiculous. Uh, these patients are not going to be able to afford this drug. The time was coming very close. And suddenly we were called and told that the French were about to approve the drug. And so what to do? We were in a dilemma. Uh, if, if, you know, the thing that kept looming up, we could, we could give it away, but that could discourage other companies from ever getting into studies of drugs that would go into the developing world. Uh, what would this do to our pricing of other products around the world if we gave it away? But when the crunch hit and, and the French regulatory people called us and said it's approved, we had a, quick, a hurried meeting, and we decided that Merck would contribute the drug to anyone in the world who needed it as long as it was needed. Now, that was a, that sort of went around the company like lightning, because here's a company that is totally dedicated to health and, and where people work around the clock to discover and develop drugs, and, and here, suddenly, this company was going to do something that they all dreamt uh, of doing. So they, I heard things like, gee, we always knew Merck was a good company, but to do this, this is fantastic. So I had piles of letters from people around the company and from outside. I also had, I also had uh, letters from stockholders, and I will tell you, not a single negative note from anyone but the one I liked the best came from a small uh, group in Iowa. And I'll read you this because I love it. Uh, we're Central City, Iowa, third graders. We read the article about river blindness in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. We feel very bad that some people in West Africa and Latin America are getting blind from, from the worm larvae that the flies spread, causing itching, weight loss, ugly skin bumps, and finally blindness. 
We think you're very nice because you're giving the medicine away free to the poor people in poor countries. We'd like to help pay for the medicine, so we brought some of our allowances to school. We also told other classrooms about river blindness and about the Merck Drug Company giving the medicine away free. Some of the boys and girls in the other rooms donated some money, too. We're sending a check for $38.32 to help pay for the medicine and for shipping it to the poor people. Well, we used every penny. <laughs> and, and, and so we started a program. So here we were. We, we had made this decision. We, we had a, uh, a uh, press conference in Washington. And there we had the head of the World Health Organization who had collaborated after he, they first walked out on us. They realized they couldn't stay out of the program. And they became very involved in the middle of the program and, and became very cooperative and very helpful. So he came to the press conference. Bill Bradley came to the, our senator, uh, presidential candidate. <laughs> and Frank Lautenberg came to the, to the press conference. I expected them. I did not expect Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy came. I hadn't met Ted before. He came late. He came walking... <laughs> He came walking down the aisle, and I could not believe it. His head was swollen. His eyes were red. His, he looked like his... Have you ever seen Ted Kennedy? <laughs> He's a little man with a big head. At any rate, so as we, we made this announcement, and the announcement was followed by, of course, great voices of, you know, go to it, from our senators and from, from the guy from the World Health Organization, talked about how closely we had worked throughout this project and how supportive we were with each other. Uh, and, and then Ted Kennedy, to my total shock, got up and spoke completely clearly as though he was used to working in these conditions at all times. <laughs> at any rate. <laughs> so so we, had, we had a wonderful meeting. We uh, announced this, and then, and then the, uh, the program took off. We didn't know quite how to do it, and so we thought we should have an outside committee, and we selected to head the outside committee uh, Bill Fagey, who was then the director of the Jimmy Carter Center in Georgia, in Atlanta. J uh, Bill Fagey had been head of the program for, uh, for the eradication of smallpox, smallpox. And so we thought he would be ideal, and he agreed to chair a group. And the group was made up of uh, world-class parasitologists from around the world. And we brought together this committee, and we said, look, you will receive the applications from anywhere in the world villages, cities, countries, and you will decide if they are ready to receive the drug. And when you tell us, we will ship the drug. Now, Merck was going to contribute the drug, but they were not going to pay for the distribution. That was just beyond us. I mean, we had paid millions and millions of dollars to develop this drug, and, and uh, we were going to distribute it. We were going to contribute it free uh, to anybody who needed it, but we needed to have help on the on the distribution. 
and a foundation was immediately set up by a software entrepreneur in, in, uh, uh, in, in Texas who was looking for a cause to, to contribute to, and he set up the River Blindness Foundation. And then one foundation after another got into this program, and the program started to, to grow. Ultimately, uh, we worked with the World Health Organization. Ultimately, the World Bank gave us $120 million for distribution. And the program grew, and from a very low number, starting at zero, we grew so that within the decade, between 1987 when we started the program and 1997, uh, the number of patients who were treated were 18 million patients per year. The target being about 50 million because there are 18 million infected people, but when we go to a village and distribute, we don't just give it to the infected people. You treat everybody because there are no side effects. And so you have to go to a much broader population. Well, by this time, everything is going great. The patients are getting it, and, and uh, the commi committee was functioning. And I thought uh, I was getting close to the time that I had to retire from, from uh, uh, Merck. And so I thought I should go and, and visit the uh, people who had the disease. And I went, I went to Chad, and, and I decided to go with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and... and uh, my wife, Diana, and I went to Chad. Uh, oh, it was in the spring of 1994. And we, we first went in by plane, then we went in by rover, and then we walked into one of these villages. And, and we, uh, we saw the poorest, one of the poorest villages in the world. These people live in mud huts. They wear grass and... and uh, uh, but they, but they're good Christians, and they sing and they dance, and they're very interesting people. And they could not wait to get their dose of ivermectin. And it was interesting to be there because the word we got was this was to be their second year in this village. Uh, in the first year, they were very skeptical about receiving the drug, and so the first ones were very fearful. Why would the Merck company give them a drug that was not being taken by any Americans? But the first few who took it had two interesting reactions. And the first one I really didn't expect. And that is when they took the drug, they passed a bunch of dead worms because these people are all infected with gastrointestinal worms. And of course, this drug kills gastrointestinal worms. I didn't know that they were going to be in there, but there they were. <laughs> the next thing that happened, that these people stopped itching for the first time in their lives. And it was an incredible thing. They were ecstatic with the results, and they couldn't wait for their second dose. And, and so we were there for the second dose with, with the Carters, who had become attached because Bill Fagey was the executive director of the Jimmy Carter Center. So, so the President Carter learned about the drug, and he wanted to go around and see these villages, and that's why we were there together. Well, these people all got in a row, and, and uh, we distributed. He and I got in a row, and we gave these people their tablet, their annual tablet, and it was the most exciting thing that I had ever been involved in to see these people and to see them 
The sad part was that there are still blind people in this village. And there was one young woman who was about 18 years old who had an infant that she was suckling. And, and she was completely blind at age 18. And so that was what was going on in, in the village in Chad. Now, uh, what is the future of the program? Well, to my, since I had committed the, uh, the company, by the way, this was kind of interesting. When I committed the company to contribute this drug forever, I failed to discuss this with the, the board of directors. <laughs> and the reason for that was that it was so exciting towards the end, and we, I was so, so consumed with government interactions and the decision as to what, how to handle the drug, that when it had to be made, we just made the decision. And, and at the next board meeting, of course, it was in all the newspapers, but at the next board meeting, I, of course, discussed the facts of what we had done. And one of the directors said, you could have discussed it earlier. And I said, I could have had I remembered, would anyone here have made a different decision? And the answer was no. And so that it passed. I got I got by that one. <laughs> okay, so why why did the Merck Company? Uh, why were they willing to do this? Why uh, why did we do this? Number one reason was the culture at Merck. Uh, the Merck Company started in 1668 in Darmstadt, Germany. It was a company. It was a an apothecary a pharmacy that was acquired by the Merck family. And, and it prospered. There were good pharmacists in 1668. I don't know what you sold as a, as a drug in 1668. I would prefer not to know. <laughs> but but, but the, uh, they were very good at it because they grew within, within Germany and, and uh, prospered. And they, they got into pure chemicals and they became a chemical company. So by the year 1891, they decided to send a family member to the United States, and they sent their son, age 24, George Merck, to the United States. And he started the Merck Company in the U.S. as a branch of the German company. In 1900, they moved from New York City, where they had an, an import office. They moved to the Rahway site and, and set up headquarters in Rawway, where they spent the next 90 years. Uh, George Merck was a terrific person. The company grew under him. He was succeeded by George W. Merck, his son. And his son built the first laboratory in 1933 in Rawway. And as they became very successful, he made the statement, which, which, was, which is really remembered by everybody at Merck forever, and that is that, that medicines are for people not for profits. But then he quickly added, uh, but wherever we have succeeded with important new medicines, profits have always followed. And, and, and so that has, that has been a very important thing, the culture at Merck. This caused the company, after World War II, after World War II, uh, there was a terrific epidemic of tuberculosis. In, in Japan, the Japanese were literally starving uh, right after the war. Uh, and, and we in the United States were not too worried about 
former enemies. Uh, but then we started to worry about them because the, the things were really collapsing. Uh, at Merck, streptomycin had been developed, had been discovered in a joint program between Rutgers and Merck by Selman Waxman. And, and this drug was the first drug that could control tuberculosis. The Japanese came to George Merck, George W. Merck, and asked him for access to the drug. They had no money. And so, so Merck licensed them our patents and, sh and showed them the technology, gave them the technology to make streptomycin in Japan. And they did that for no money at all. The result was a relationship between Merck and the Japanese people and the Japanese government that most people don't know about. But in 1983, when it was extremely hard to do business in Japan, uh, Merck was able to acquire a medium-sized Japanese company in the largest uh, acquisition ever done by a non-Japanese company. And I'm sure that was related to the, the gift of streptomycin after World War II. But it is no accident that Merck is the largest non-Japanese company in all of Japan today. And we have had more than one inc instance where, where philanthropy up front, which is extremely important to the people involved in the long run, has been a good business step. Secondly, uh, Merck is built on the discovery of its scientists. Its scientists are the best in the world for drug discovery and development, and, and their morale is exceedingly important. Just the idea of a drug which is as magical as ivermectin in stopping a disease like river blindness not being utilized was totally unacceptable and would have destroyed the morale in our scientific laboratories. And, and the decision to contribute that drug was such a turn on for our scientists that that was made in 1987 uh, and, and 12 years later, our scientists still talk about it. And so that was important also. Then we worried about the effect on other companies. Would they stop doing research in third world or developing world diseases? We worried about that. We didn't know what to do about it, but we have watched. And it's very interesting that over the years, instead of stopping, a number of companies have stepped up to emulate the step that Merck did. Uh, uh, Smith, Smith Klein Beecham has come forward to contribute, not for everybody, but to some degree, uh, a drug for the control of elephantiasis, lymphatic, uh, lymphatic, uh, whatever it is. Uh, another drug, the DuPont Company, uh, wanted to stop the spread of the guinea worm, which is this worm that gets into the skin, and then the worm comes sticking, crawling out of the skin and, and looks at you. And, <laughs> and, and, and this, is, this is transmitted by a flea that, that's, that's in the drinking water, and you could get rid of this by filtering the, fil the, uh, 
the drinking water through a little mesh of nylon. And DuPont has come forward and uh, contributed that, that uh, nylon mesh. And so instead of, instead of uh, uh, stopping the process of discovery of third world drugs, uh, companies continue to step up to their responsibilities. Now, what made Merck, what made it possible for Merck to do this? And, and, and that is the fact that they are so successful in other areas and, and they were profitable. And this morning, one of the, uh, or this afternoon, one of the panels we talked about was the pro what, what are profits? How do profits uh, stack up with ethics? And, and the point is, unless you have successful companies, it will be very hard to, to step up and do some of these dramatic things that combat diseases in the developing world. And, and unless we continue to do research and development at the rate that we do it in the United States, we will not have the, the changes in, the, uh, uh, in health that we have seen, the dramatic changes that, that we've seen over the last 50 years. So just, just to, uh, to wrap this up, I will just take you back to the village of Chad and say that the treatment of patients with uh, river blindness was probably one of the most exciting things I've ever had in my life. And, and uh, that all came from an interest in uh, a meandering interest in chemistry and teaching and research and working in a company that was able to put it all together. So I'm uh, delighted to be here in your bioethics wrap up. And, and uh, thanks for staying up so late. Thank you. I would be glad to take any questions if there are any, if it's not too late at night. I'm, I'm not tired if you are. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for asking. <laughs> the, the mechanism of action of the antiparasitic drug, it's a glutamate-gated chloride channel stimulator. In other words, it goes to this channel and it turns it on and thereby paralyzes the worm. Now, the incredible thing is that this type of glutamate-gated channel is not present in mammals. It's only present in worms. And so you can, so you can paralyze worms and leave the host completely okay. No, not at all, not at all. It's a big macrolid. Other question? Yes. Uh, doctor, I'm just curious. When you, when you developed other drugs similar to the one you used for river blindness that, are, that can really, really help to solve medical problems in populations that really can't afford the drugs, I'm wondering what kind of measures you take in order to try to finance those sort of programs. Yeah. The question is what we do. Well, you see, the, the wonderful happenstance in this instance was we had a drug which we could give away free to people who had the disease but we were not selling this drug to people elsewhere in the world, so there was not a pricing disparity. It was free for everybody, but everybody was poor. 
And, and so, so that was easy. The hard one is when you have a drug which is expensive and, it, and, and it's used, and it's used uh, in the developing world where people can afford it. Now, what happens in those places where they're very poor? And the best that can be done by the industry, there are two things that are done. First of all, every company, in the United States at least, has, has a contribution program where they contribute some drugs, but never enough to cover a country. What they do is have tiered pricing so that they will have lower prices in, in, in countries that are really impoverished. But I will tell you that it's not a very satisfactory thing because in many of these places, health is not a high priority for their governments. And so it is, it is a tough thing to deal with. And one of the issues that came up this afternoon, I pointed out that the availability of measles and mumps vaccine uh, was at a cost of 10 cents for lifelong immunity. And for many, many years, this was not available in Africa. And, and young children were dying by the hundreds of thousands because of lack of the vaccines. And so getting these have to be attacked by society as a whole and governments to get these vital drugs and vaccines to people who are really, really poor and at the very bottom. And as I say, the drug company, pharmaceutical companies just cannot be turned to to take care of the rest of the world. Yes. I was wondering, um, considering all that you've done for international medicine within Africa, we have an enormous problem here in our own country with about, you know, almost 40 million people with inadequate health coverage and also the exorbitant prices of a lot of pharmaceuticals. Has there been any collaborative efforts between the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry? And if so, have you come to any consensus that could solve it other than socialized medicine? <laughs> <laughs> I know no one wants to hear that or hear probably. <laughs> well, the issue, first of all, you, you use some fiery words exorbitant prices of prescription drugs. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but it's, it's, it's a perception that, that is really difficult. And that is, what is a fair price of a drug that keeps people alive or keeps them out of hospitals? And, and the issue of pricing of pharmaceuticals really boils down to what value do they contribute? If you have a drug that truly can prevent something that Take a drug that normalizes high blood cholesterol. I don't know what the price is today. That was discovered in my laboratory years ago. Uh, went on the market in 1987, and now there are a half dozen copies available. But the Merck drugs are the grandfathers of all these drugs. These have helped millions of people prevent heart attacks and, and strokes. Millions. Um, what is the cost today? Maybe $2 a day. What is the cost of a Coke or, or coffee in a restaurant? You know, these, these are considered exorbitant prices. Uh, and, and I don't think, you know, I don't think it's easy to pay these things if you're poor. Uh, we need a way to pay them as part of insurance programs. I do not think socialized medicine or socialized anything 
is the answer at all. Having interacted with government now for 45 years, I can assure you that that does not solve the problem. Now, how to do it? Uh, I think I think drug benefits or drugs should be part of every health plan, and insurance companies have taken on to that, and and most very many people, not the uninsured, but many of the insured people have programs where they can get a prescription drug for a a, a copayment of either a dollar or five dollars uh, for a month, and so. That's being taken care of. Now, the uninsured are people who we all worry about, and they, some of them, and truly, cannot afford to be insured. And, and uh, some of them can and elect not to. But those who cannot, we need to take care of, and we need, to, we need as a country to have a program that brings everybody into some kind of an insurance program. And I favor that, and, and I would love to get it done. It can't be done in one step, but it can be done gradually over a five-year period. And I think that's what ought to be done. Everybody ought to be brought in, and we ought to pay for it. Yes? Well, I, uh, advice as to how to solve the current problems in health, and, and uh, it's very hard to, to pull on a, uh, you know, it's not a statistical thing to look at your own career, but, but the, uh, most people who have been able to make an, a contribution in health care have done it because they've followed the things that, they're, that come easily to them that are of great interest to them and where they're willing to dedicate their lives. And, and uh, many people do it and love it. And so I would say, if you're on the technical side, biomedical research, which is my bag, is a wonderful, is, is a wonderful career because, because of the, the excitement. I, I can't tell you how exciting it is to see a drug work first in animals and then in humans, and then to learn that you're keeping people out of hospitals and keeping them alive. There is nothing that is more satisfying than that. Now, I went through research, then teaching, then research in drug discovery, and then I ran a company. And people have said, well, are there any of those that were, you know, would you skip any part of that? And the answer is no. I think I enjoyed every aspect of it, love teaching. And by the way, I've taught uh, medical students, graduate students, and undergrads. And I will tell you that teaching the undergrads is by far the most interesting. So, so being with this group is fun. Yes? You mentioned in your speech that the impetus for distributing the drug for free was because of French competition who are coming out with a better drug. How did you feel and what was your thought process? How did you justify to yourself distributing a drug that was theoretically inferior to another drug that, was, that, was, that would no, have come no, out? No, I think you misunderstood. Our, no, no one else had a drug like ours. There is no other drug like ivermectin. 
the reason we hurried at the end was that the French regulatory authority, who were going to approve the drug, were about to approve it. And therefore, we had to make a quick decision on how to get it to the people. There is no competitive drug. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was just an accident. <laughs> we were getting soil from every part of the world, and the microorganism was was selected by a colleague who who was at the uh, one of the uh, research institutes in Japan, and he happened to be playing golf, so he picked up some soil. <laughs> no special reason, yes. Yeah. The, the question is, are pharmaceutical companies doing anything to help stop the spread of, of uh, resistant organi uh, organisms resistant to antibiotics, the overuse of antibiotics? Yes, the best, the best uh, advice for slowing the, the, the evolution of resistance to antibiotics, which always happens by natural selection, is is not to overuse the, not to overuse the antibiotics, use them only when there's a specific need, and and there was a time when antibiotics were used uh, for treatment of colds, and and things that for which antibiotics are useless, and that's when you get uh, when you get resistance in organisms that are adventitious organisms. Yes, back here. I'm Corey Larson from um, Arizona State University. Um, I've heard you speak over the today in both the forum and um, up here that, okay, first of all, Merck is a huge multinational corporation um, that transcends both the American economy and thus um, fall, doesn't fall specifically under American legislation, um, meaning that it exists in other countries and thus falls under that legislation. Um, today we recognize that there is some problem in, pharma in the pharmaceutical and that some people who need certain drugs cannot get them because they are too expensive. And we also, this is a problem, and I've heard uh, yourself and Dr. Rosenberg um, at the forum consistently say that we need um, legislation from the Senate in the United States that perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court should um, write legislation that um, within the United States we need reform. And yet I can't help thinking that um, the pharmaceutical industry is a worldwide industry, as is um, the economy ever growing from not just the U.S. economy, it's becoming more of a world market. Um, in an article I had to read for a precept, um, it noted that the fact that um, in Europe um, the pharmaceutical prices were set, um, were in fact fixed, and therefore this um, jacked up prices to some extent in the United States, and obviously not causing um, exorbitant prices in the U.S., perhaps assisting in that. My question is, um, are you simply being blind and saying that this is just a U.S. problem? Is there not a mandate here that we should be attacking this question on a world um, scale? And how could we do that? You'll have to restate the question because I missed it with a long... 
<laughs> Can you just in a simple? Okay. Throughout the day, you've said that um, we, we we all admit that there is some problem in the pharmaceutical industry, and that um, some people have needs for drugs that they cannot get because um, their problem. We, we've talked all day about the um, the need for perhaps legislation. The U.S. Supreme Court should write. Um, you said in the forum, there's been suggestion the U.S. Supreme Court should write um, a mandate for how how the pharmaceutical industry should run. Um, my point is that this doesn't fall under the United States, that our economy is becoming a world economy. Pharmaceutical industries are so huge that they're, in fact, falling in the yeah, world just, market. Uh, just the question. <laughs> the, this problem is a world problem, basically. It, how do we solve this on a world problem? Are we being naive just looking at this? in our country alone. Okay. Uh, it is the, the, the question of the availability of prescription drugs is certainly a world problem and we cannot solve it by the United States alone. The United States does have an inordinate percent of the research part of the pharmaceutical industry. And so many of the new products come out of here. Now, the pricing between the United States and different countries, especially in Europe, as you said, many of those prices are fixed by government. Those are negotiated. So a fair price is determined by a company, and they try to get that same price every, pay, every place in the world, where a government says that we will only pay you 80% of that price, the company then has to decide whether they will accept 80% or not sell in that, in that country. And that decision is made country by country by each company. And sometimes the answer is that we just will not sell in that, in that country. Now, I don't think it's fair to ask a company to look to see to it that its products are available to everybody in the world. Because if you think of every other industry, the car industry doesn't do that. The airplane industry doesn't do that. The clothing industry doesn't do that. No industry looks to the, to the availability of their products to everybody in the world. It is the wish of a company like Merck to price at a level where the people in the developed world who need that drug can afford it. And that's the target. And, and they come as close as they can. And, and Merck has been a leader in trying to keep a lid on price escalation. And it's done that since about, I think, 1985 when I became CEO. <laughs> uh, my name is Julian Harris from Duke University. Do you think that an international organization like the WHO could play some role in during the early stages of drug development, holding conversations with pharmaceutical companies, with national governments, perhaps with the NIH and the CDC, about how that drug will be made available in developing countries, kind of in the earlier stages, so that it's not a question at the end? Or do you think that the bureaucracy and all the problems that they have at WHO would? I, th I think the bureaucracy that we ran into in the World Health Organization, I mean, you wouldn't believe what we ran into. It was an incredible thing. Let me just tell you a little more about that. First of all, they told us the drug was not going to work, and they walked out on us. Then, as they saw the development of the results, 
they became very worried that they were going to be left out of the most important drug, you know, in a decade or longer. And so they asked to come in. So we took them in and we started working in their clinics in Africa because they had the infrastructure and we did not. At which point they started publishing papers where they claimed discovery of our drug. At which point I told them I would go to the New York Times if they didn't retract that. And I had, I had our people write a chronology of the drug discovery and development. I sent it to the head of the World Health Organization, asked him to sign it before I would allow them to cooperate with us. That is the kind of bureaucracy I don't like to work with. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Right. Well, it's up to the company to be as profitable as possible because that's what their stockholders demand. Now, where the tax money goes after it's paid into the government, you know better than I. Nobody knows. It goes into a black hole. <laughs> but it is available to be put back into the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and other ways that will, will, that will put it back into universities where the pure basic research is done. And so, so there is a terrific relationship between industry and universities, and both of them have really, I mean, between the two, we have the dominant biomedical industry in the world. Not at all. Not at all. No. Yes. No, 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 you. Now, let, let me explain that. The reason for the cost of the drugs, the price of the drugs, let me tell you first, let's go back. The cost, the average cost of discovery and, and developing a drug is about $400 million. Okay, and it takes 12 to 15 years to do that. Most research projects fail, the great majority do. So all, the, the, all those costs have to be covered by the price of the drugs. So it's the price of research and development, and it's not the previous, it's not the cost behind it, 
but the projected costs of the continued growth of research and development, which the price of the drugs are covering. And, and, and therefore, and therefore, the only way you can balance the, the prices which are high is, is to look at the value that they deliver and say, is it a fair price for the value that's delivered? And most people who are sick or have a need believe it's a fair price. Absolutely. But let me say that again. Merck is out to make a profit. Absolutely. Without profits, there would be no incentive to invest one and a half billion dollars a year in research and development with the hope that a new product will come along occasionally that will be very profitable. In other words, without the incentive of profit, there is no investment in the future because the stockholders won't do it. That's what it is. Yes. Hi, my name is Darren Padula. I'm here from Michigan State University. And my question is concerning something a little bit that you talked about earlier today in the panel discussion. And you were talking about how people from the NIH, people, I think it was the company uh, Chiron, uh, like would branch off and the, the guy would create the company based on uh, you know, the discovery he'd found and then everything was good. But you've mentioned several times that many companies uh, have products that don't work, that fail. And, that and that it, fail. And that many companies that are uh, on shaky ground combined together, and then you have a, a larger company that's shaking together. Shaky, right. But, you got it. Uh, what, I, <laughs> what, what, what I was wondering was, you know, not whether, you know, obviously that's a bad move, but more and more as I talk to people that work at the NIH and, and make contacts at universities, I hear stories of people that have been head of departments that leave and they go off and form their own private companies. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think it's going to end up uh, causing a rift in the research community or causing a, a slowdown of what has so recently been an insurgence of, of discoveries? In okay, that's a good question. And that is there, is, there are two things that are going on in universities today, and that is there are people who are doing pure basic research, which was what everybody did before, before I would say, about 1975, 1980. Everybody at universities did pure basic research. They looked down on people who work in industry. They did not like to do applied research. That, that was thought to be demeaning. That has changed. That has changed. More and more people want to do applied research uh, in, in universities. Now, I think there are two kinds of people in universities. Those who want to do applied research, and they should do it. They should do it. And if they want to spin off and, and have a company at the same time they remain as faculty, that's fine so long as it's as long as there's an appropriate agreement with their university and they go on doing their teaching and research in addition. They may leave the university. I left the university. I did not start a company. I went to Merck. But one can do it in, in many ways. Is this causing a rift? Will this slow down? the research going on in universities. I think research at universities is going faster than it has ever gone. Now, some of it is applied. The great majority is still 
still basic, basic, and and uh, uh, one has to be one has to have a balanced view of what what faculty want to do and make sure that the faculty recognize that their primary responsibility is education and research. And if they want to have a business on the side, some of them will. That will be a, a small minority. I don't think it's a handicap. Yes. Well, I, I will only comment related to the pharmaceutical industry. And as far as I know, anything that's brought from any country, and, and uh, let me give you an example. Uh, there was an issue in Costa Rica that where, where people were worried about conserving their environment in an area of Costa Rica that was being impinged. And, and, and a professor actually from the University of Pennsylvania had the notion that, that, they could, that they could stake off a very large piece of Costa Rica and preserve its environment. And to do that, they said they, they came to us and, and one of our research people took a proposal that we would support uh, drug discovery that would occur in the rainforest of Costa Rica. They would send us soil samples, insects, uh, plants, and we would, we would set up a small laboratory in Costa Rica in the university where they would process these things that were selected by trained uh, people who would gather these samples. And, and if a drug were found in any of these sources, the profits would go back into the the environment that that they came out of and they would therefore feed and, and and sustain this large piece of land as as an environment as an environmental uh, preserve and so there are all kinds of agreements that are being made by companies that want to deal with with uh, countries that are willing to to collaborate piracy on the pharmaceutical side I'm not aware of I have not, there may be some, but I don't know about it. Okay, Kevin, I think we're done. Thank you, Dr. Vagelos, for your entertaining and informative talk <laughs> and for sharing with us your noble efforts in curing river blindness. We appreciate your joining us today. I'm sorry we don't even have $38 to offer you. <laughs>
Now, as the conference come, draws to a close, I would like to take this opportunity to recognize and thank our tireless conference chair and president of the Bioethics Forum. Over a year ago, a group of students began talking about organizing a conference which would bring together leading figures in the field of bioethics with students across the country. It could have easily ended there, another unfulfilled good idea. But Katie Tillman, with her perseverance, endless energy, and enthusiasm, brought this idea to fruition. Katie's tremendous dedication and excellence, and I mean excellence, in the planning and execution of this conference have enabled us all to participate in the fascinating discussions that we have heard over the weekend. On behalf of the Bioethics Forum of Princeton University and the speakers and participants that have joined us throughout the weekend, I would like to thank Katie for her outstanding work and the tremendous contribution that she has made to the field of bioethics. Thank you, Katie. Thank you very much. I'm much more nervous now than I was before. So uh, just a few closing comments. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking Dr. Vagelos and all of the other speakers that have joined us for the conference these past two days. I believe it is rare that such a large and distinguished group of thinkers is assembled for an undergraduate conference, and we are grateful for their willingness to help us make this weekend a success. As we have learned through the discussions, lectures, panels, and debates of the last two days, our challenges are many. I agree with Dr. Shapiro's prediction that there will be no shortage of ethical questions for us to analyze in the coming years, as scientific endeavors such as the Human Genome Project and technologies such as cloning and genomics continue to propel us forward into ethically uncharted waters. It will be up to us to help find suitable and ethical solutions to these difficult merges of science, industry, and society. As we close the conference tonight, I hope that each of you will choose to continue to actively seek out opportunities to discuss these very important issues. One of the primary goals of this conference was to spark an ongoing dialogue about bioethics, and we hope that each and every one of you will take up this challenge. For those of you in the audience, I would ask that you take some time to fill out the conference survey, which can be found in the front section of your binder. We would like to know how we can improve on the off chance that we ever catch up on our schoolwork enough to plan <laughs> such an event again. We would also be happy to share these insights with any of you who may choose to plan a similar event at your own school. Our website will contain quite a lot of post-conference information, including pictures, the survey if you don't manage to fill it out tonight, and narratives of the conference. Please give us a little time to recover and then check back often to see our updates. Information, information about submitting to our journal is also available online, and I hope that many of you will consider submitting your work for publication. At this point, I would like once again to thank the speakers, donors, and participants for your contributions to this event. Many Princeton students worked on planning this conference, definitely did not do it alone. I hope you'll take some time tonight if you have the chance to recognize all the people you've been seeing in Wick Hall with name tags 
Um, they've really been doing the grunt work. I sort of got to sit back once the weekend started. With that, I would like to wish you all safe travel and a good night. Wig Hall will be open tonight until 11 p.m., and we will also be open at 9 a.m. tomorrow if you have any further questions. Thank you.